For March 1st, 2021, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 661. It's almost like Herman's head. It's Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The overthinkers are like a crew of surfers who also commits bank robberies. Sorry, was that too on the nose? I'm uh, <laughs> I'm uh, Matt, and I'm here with Pete. Pete, how you doing, dude? <laughs> I'm uh, I'm riding the edge, Matt. How are you doing? Oh yeah, I'm just. Uh, it's like uh, I caught my first tube today. <laughs> caught my first. <laughs> You know. Um, All right. So uh, here's what happened. Here's the story. The story is here. Um, As we sort of cast about for things that Pete and I would like to talk about on the podcast, uh, the observation was made. I forget where uh, I forget where it was made, but the observation was made. Um, I think by you, Pete, that HBO Max has a bunch of good movies on it. A lot of good movies. Yeah. Like a lot, a lot of good movies. Yeah. And I, I had, I had noticed this though. I had not articulated it. I had kind of an inchoate sense because once I started from, I think I started from Spy Game with Robert Redford and Brad Pitt, a, a film that I'm always very happy to watch. And, um, you know, I, I went into the recommendations for that, the, the, you know, content merchandising that tries to make you click away to other movies and then down the rabbit hole of like recommendations on recommendations on recommendations. And I guess I taught the algorithm something about me because I was, I ended up scrolling through these carousels of film thumbnails and being like, Oh, that's such a great movie. I want to watch that. Oh, that's such a great movie. I want to watch that. Oh, that's such a great movie. I want to watch that. And apropos of nothing whatever it was pointed out i think this was pointed out by me that among the good films on hbo max is the film point break with- do you think do you think that the algorithm in making the recommendation started out dispassionately just doing its job but the more it learned about you the more it fell into your lifestyle and eventually, <laughs> and eventually found itself transformed by the experience i took conflicted that- about what movie to show you after all you know usually it's the algorithm that radicalizes people and makes them do crazy <laughs> things but i radicalized the algorithm and that's the difference and so yeah. from the two observations that hbo Max, actually, the you know the whatever the Warner's catalog, you know, <laughs> contains some good films, and uh, and also that Point Break is among those good films that that it contains. Led uh, led to this, where we uh, will discuss Point Break. Um, I'm going to begin, Pete, with a bit of a, a controversial statement. Okay, sure. We are pronouncing the title of the film wrong. Okay. We should not be pronouncing it Point Break as opposed to Point Doom or Point Riaz or Point, you know, what have you, right? We should be pronouncing it Point Break. That is to say the contrastive stress on the first word to distinguish it from Beach Break, Reef Break, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, what, Jetty Break or all the different kinds of surf breaks that create the waves that you know, become the kind of the hotspots for surfing because that's where the good waves are. And so the way, you know, um, 
the the same way that you don't say New York to distinguish it from Old York, right? You say New York to distinguish it from New Jersey and New Hampshire. We should say point break to distinguish it from the other types of breaks rather than, uh, uh, you know, rather than the other kinds of uh, points, <laughs> I guess. Wow. Um, so, what so, so what you're telling me is that point break, uh-huh. the, the 1991, Hit? I think it was a hit. It was successful. Yeah. Uh, Surf, skydiving, bank robbery, uh, action, uh, adventure, cop movie. Not not adventure movie. Um, Directed by Catherine Bigelow. Its name doesn't just refer to the breaking point of individual people and their spirits or the point at which society breaks down and mere impulse uh, conquers the world, but is actually trying to teach you something about surfing. Yeah, it absolutely, it absolutely is, man. It's the source, you <laughs> so, know? So there's a break, right? So you're saying that just to make sure, cause this is overthinking it. So we want to make sure that our listeners leave this with a full understanding of everything important about point break. Yep. It, that, that a break is a geographical feature that causes the waves to break yep. in such a way that is conducive to surfing. Yeah, Pete, I, w- I would say that a surf break, also break, short break, or big wave break is a permanent or semi-permanent obstruction, such uh-huh. as a coral reef, rock, shoal, or headland that causes a wave to break, forming a barreling wave or other wave that can be surfed before it eventually collapses. The topography of the seabed determines the shape of the wave and type of break. Since shoals can change size and location affecting the break, it takes commitment and skill to find good breaks. Oh, oh, come on Wikipedia, need citation. That is <laughs> <laughs> that is evaluative. That is not yeah. a neutral point of view right there. Someone is editorializing. Someone is hating on other surfers or at least on the 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 uh Assumption that as a surfer, they don't have significant uh, cartography and orienteering skills. Yeah, right. <laughs> I'm not sure. So the notion – so this – if you've ever wondered why some places have better waves than others, here's a great explanation. Certainly when I live out on the East Coast, we have a big continental shelf, not any coral reefs really that I run into. Right. I've never really run into big surfable waves. Uh, and, and now to think about it, I haven't run into a lot of the geographical features you're talking about in the context of waves either. So that all makes sense. Excellent. Yeah. So that's a uh, that's a uh, that's that. Um, the other observation I have, Pete, before before I throw to you, just apropos okay. of nothing whatsoever, Gary Busey is a gift from God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just. Just everything I I like Gary Busey is is the altar at which I worship now because like the the man is absolutely astonishing and I I think he's real I think he's for real I think that's not like just to put on for the movies I actually think like maybe like the Prestige or spoilers for the Prestige I suppose <laughs> I think Gary Busey lives his entire life as Gary Busey. <laughs> <laughs> That's uh all right, Pete. Sorry. What how how did you find uh returning to point break when you well, watched okay. it this time? I feel like we shouldn't just let this drop. I feel like this is an important way into the movie sure. because it addresses what the movie's about in a variety of ways, which I felt like this movie was surprisingly complex. And Gary Busey's character is part of what makes it complex. Yes. Part of what makes it seem like it's not going to be complex is all the imitators that it has. So if you're familiar with the podcast, you might also be familiar with our fondness for the Fast and the Furious movies. It is no secret that the first Fast and the Furious movie is Point Break with Cars. 
that is what it is, right? It is it is very, very similar to Point Break. Now, it has a lot of differences, mind you, but these differences exist in the context of extreme similarity, right? Very, yeah. very similar plot. So if you've never seen Point Break, but you've seen The Fast and the Furious, that's the kind of story we're dealing with. Keanu Reeves is a cop who has gone undercover trying to track down some thieves and in, in, a, in, a, in a youth subculture where people who don't follow the rules are known to flock. And in doing so, he becomes enamored of this subculture and participates in it to the point of earning the respect of somebody in the subculture who he at first thinks is not Right. And I guess from here on out, spoilers for Point Break. Right. Uh So go watch it and come back. Right. But he gets into the good graces of somebody who he thinks is not the villain. Right. Is not the thief. Right. Villain is the wrong word because Fast and Furious has a different relationship with villainy than Point Break does. And we'll get into that, too. But he makes friends with the people he thinks are the good surfers in this case. And in Fast and Furious, it's the good car racers in the hopes that they will help him locate the bad surfers or car racers and then it turns out that the ones he made friends with are the bad ones and then there's a reckoning as to what that means what does bad mean in this context uh and point break makes some strong choices in that and fast and furious makes very different choices but you could not be uh indicted i don't think or blamed for looking at movies like fast and furious or other sorts of point break-esque films and thinking that the original point break is very simple because it's a pretty simple premise, but there's a lot about it that confounds what it's trying to do and calls the question to it while you're watching it. Mm. And I think that's part of what makes it good uh, and interesting, but also makes it strain credulity more than it might otherwise. One of those things is Gary Busey. Right. Not a character present in the Fast and the Furious franchise, as far as I know, is Gary Busey in any way, but uh, nor, nor his character in Point Break. So in uh, movies that are like this, The young cop who ends up or FBI agent or whatever, who ends up with the youth subculture undercover in too deep, losing his objectivity, has a a boss, right, who comes down hard on him or who chastises him or is more of his sort of fake, inadequate father figure trying to tell him to kind of not go do this thing. Right. Well, in Point Break, that figure exists and is played by uh, the guy from Scrubs, who's amazing. (laughs) <laughs> I love it so much. He's so great in this movie. Uh, and um, what is what is his name? Which guy from Scrubs is he? I guess I should say because I didn't watch enough Scrubs to re- remember which character is what is the name of this character from Scrubs that, that I'm yeah, talking about. No, and I I don't even know the actor's name. Oh, John McGinley is the actor's yeah, name. Doctor Cox, Doctor Cox from Scrubs. Got it. Plays the like snarling, overbearing. You can't go do that thing, police boss in this movie. And Gary Busey is an older cop who is paired with the younger cop and who shares a lot of the way of thinking of the youth subculture, even though he's older. And so there's this interesting generational echo in this movie where, you know, Keanu Reeves is this uh, college Rose Bowl winning star quarterback who blows out his knee, much like Keanu Reeves himself did and couldn't become a professional hockey player. And decides to join law enforcement after he can't become a professional football player, becomes an FBI special agent and and uh, goes to law school, goes to law school, law law school, then becomes a special agent. When he shows up to work in Los Angeles, everybody is sort of like, oh, you don't know how things really are. Quarterback, jock, idiot. Right. Like you don't really know the way the world works. And you sort of expect them to come down on his desire to say date surfers. Right. That he's supposed to be investigating. 
but he's paired with this older cop who is a Vietnam veteran and is a sort of snarly, not even sort of, a snarly, uh, appetite-driven, you know, uh, really kind of id-motivated police officer. But not stupid, but but definitely follows hunches, follows his heart, follows his gut in a way that supposedly the cops in this movie aren't supposed to do. No, absolutely. That's the first thing that uh, that Dr. Cox says. Um <laughs> <laughs> it's it's in the same cinematic universe. Doctor, after this movie, Doctor Cox is is fired from the FBI and goes to medical school, and then he joins the cast. Right. Well, he's he he already has an interest in health because the first thing he asks Keanu Reeves is if he had a good balanced breakfast that morning. <laughs> right. Like no coffee. You know, no coffee. And that's uh. And he's it goes got some, on some serious Doctor Graham going on, like serious <laughs> Doctor Graham and his crackers. Right. Like there's this is a movie that has a lot of talk about ejaculates. It, like, like more than is comfortable in a movie about surfers, which is some. <laughs> so, <laughs> I don't remember Blue Crush talking about it nearly as much as this movie did. Uh, no, sorry. Go ahead. You were talking about Dr. But, Cox. And then, and and then he says what we do more than anything is we like crunch the data for we, – we like examine the database, right. you know? And so he has, he has a kind of mechanistic uh, procedural – um, yeah. vision of of how things should go and he I even is, refer to him as a by the book cop oh yes yeah. he's it's, uh <laughs> that's right and gary Busey is very interesting because he has he is you know older right than his superior um and i i guess has been in the fbi longer but like gary Busey is not a personality that you necessarily associate with federal law enforcement right like right. the guys in dark suits you know who right. show up with dark, dark suit suits and sunglasses and uh neither is keanu reeves um though i suppose he's closer but like gary Busey is gary Busey, who was born in the 40s was in vietnam right he he represents sort of the 60s like he represents a counterculture that was sort of radicalized by the war and sort of disillusioned with america uh in the war it, if anything keanu reeves is a little too willing to go down the the road with the the surfers he should be like a reagan youth you know he should be like a uh well, yeah. he certainly there is a reagan in this movie but yes. <laughs> and i guess he has a kind of a fatherly relationship with uh with Keanu with Keanu Reeves. But the interesting, I mean, you're bringing up a kind of generational difference, a temperamental difference, but also a generational difference. And that's something that's mined for, I think, interesting effect in this movie, because the the Patrick Swayze character is, well, Patrick Swayze is 40, you know, and you assume he's playing about his age because they don't they don't make him look younger, uh, right. that much younger anyway. And, uh, Keanu Reeves is playing his age and Gary Busey is, is playing, you know, the, like the references to Vietnam. That is to say, it tracks with the actual age of the actor, uh, you know, and the character. So that like, uh, whereas the kid working in the surf shop, the like, the, the prepubescent, uh, you know, retail employee who <laughs> is selling, um, Keanu Reeves's first surfboard. And he says, like, it's nice to see older guys getting into surfing. Uh, and Keanu Reeves says, man, I'm 25. And the, <laughs> the kid says, yeah, exactly. That's what I mean. It's never too late to start. <laughs> 
um, <laughs> sells him his surfboard. But then actually, like the master surfer, the like the the you know the sort of spiritual teacher or whatever is supposed to be is actually you know fifteen years older than uh, than Keanu Reeves is. So th- there's something about the 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 generation, like the the whether it's um you know the surfing is a state of mind. Right. And kind of opting into or there's a there's a relationship, you know, that every character has across the like multidimensional axes of uh, of tuning in, turning on and dropping out. Right. Right. That like um, is sort of different. You can plot them all on on different axes uh, in that movie. But I'm sorry. Back to you, because you were you were going into this. So this is interesting. So because I, I definitely feel like. And maybe this is just my own age showing, but this sort of feels like Keanu Reeves is in the middle between a conflict between Gary Busey and Patrick Swayze in this movie, except Gary Busey doesn't know that he's in conflict with Patrick Swayze. He he doesn't know who Patrick Swayze is because Keanu Reeves isn't telling him about the information. But the, it is interesting how Gary Busey cracks the case because Gary Busey is the one who figures out what's going on. Gary Busey, despite the fact that he doesn't have access to the database, he still uses deductive reasoning and evidence to come to conclusions. And what he looks at is the seasonality of this rash of bank robberies, and he matches it up with the summertime and suspects that the people involved in the robberies are people who are in Southern California for the summer. Mm. And so who are kind of itinerant travelers who show up in Southern California for the summer and then leave, who might travel in groups and who might not be on the books and who might need money for their travels. And he surmises that they might be, is, what other, oh, and, and who might have really severe tan lines because one of the moons, the, uh, the camera, the security camera as he's leaving the bank. And he ascertains from that, that they're surfers. And so one of the interesting kind of uh, it's not even a point counterpoint. It's sort of a point uh, falsifiable. Like it's sort of a, a sort of a point in contrary evidence is that that uh, Patrick Swayze lives this life that doesn't have the kind of systematic quality of the man. Right. This idea that society is is trying to keep everybody in their little cars and they all go back and forth to their various places and they all do the things that are expected of them. Whereas he, as the surf master, right, he goes wherever he wants. He does whatever he wants and he's free. Right. And, and he's not free necessarily just because he goes wherever he wants, but also because he has this relationship with the ocean. However, he does travel to predictable places at predictable times to do his work that society is able to like absorb and and digest from a data perspective and determine right and the issue isn't so much that Patrick Swayze isn't systematic right or or Bodhi as he's called right mm. isn't systematic as he says it's more that because he's part of a subculture he's not being captured by the data that is being gathered in 1991 about people and their jobs Right. So there's a limit to what John McGinley can capture. If this movie were taking place now, and I know they did make a remake, which we didn't watch, then there would be a very, very simple thing to figure out which surfers are on which beach at which time. Right. But at this point, sure. yeah, there would be that's something that's really available. There would be something like drones, right? Like they'd be like facial recognitioning yeah. all of the or like the beaches would have Instagram accounts and would have pictures of people on them. Right. <laughs> right. Or like or like the people or surfers themselves would be raising money through Instagram and Patreon and stuff rather than uh, or through their discord services. Rather go, than fund, go fund banks. my go fund my crime wave. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So so it's interesting. So I would suggest here that Bodhi in Point Break, Point Break is a lot more similar to Heath Ledger's Joker than he is to Dom Toretto in the Fast and the Furious movies. Because it 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 just it 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 goes back to that question, man, for an agent of chaos, he sure is organized. Right. Like, I don't follow any rules. Yeah, he's got except, he, yeah. he definitely keeps his passport up to date, you right. know, in order to yeah. uh, go where he goes. Right, right, right. So he's he has this elaborate scheme that he has orchestrated. He keeps it very carefully calibrated and he keeps the people beneath him uh, not under the impression that they're being controlled, but he controls them through influence so that they behave in ways that are predictable to him. And also he does good HR. He only lets the people into his inner circle who do the things that are predictable to him that he feels like he has a handle on because there's this rival group of surfers who are off the handle, violent, crazy people. And he goes, he doesn't go near them. He's not, you know, they know him, he knows them, but he keeps them at more than an arm's length, even though one might assume that they would be useful in a criminal enterprise, such as a bunch of bank robbery, because he knows they would draw too much attention, right? So he operates, he has this very slightly below the radar and being below the radar is actually an important symbol, not important, but it's a symbol in this movie where at one point near the end, Bodhi decides literally to rise above the radar level in order to be seen, which is in violation of his own uh, rules, which he had set earlier. And he does this on a couple of occasions as the action of the movie is reaching its climax, which both is part of Bodhi's journey towards uh, hypocrisy, right? Bodhi is revealed to be something of a terrible person by the end of this movie. And I'm curious what you think about that. But um, but this notion that he keeps everything very controlled, they get in and out of each of these bank robberies in 90 seconds. They don't kill anybody ever. And you could say, well, this is because he's a Buddhist. This is because he values human life. He doesn't want care about violence, right? He doesn't want to be violent. I actually uh, thought, no, maybe I should have admitted this sooner, but this is actually my first time seeing Point Break or Point Break. Oh, really? Yeah, this oh. was my first experience with it. And so every, so I had, like, uh, as, <laughs> as the Buddhists say, I had beginner's mind with this uh with this film and you know you sort of wonder sometimes like which tropes are going to be fulfilled by a movie you're watching and the fir- at first i thought when i heard you know they've never fired a gun they've never fired a, a discharged a firearm in in the commission of their bank robberies i thought like ah this is smart like he's keeping it like he's keeping the criminal charges you know yep. more minor you know than mm-hmm. they than they might be if you discharge a weapon in the, the commission of a felony and um also like yeah there's a philosophical thing these are like the good thieves who you know don't who don't believe in violence and this makes them different from the like the tweaker bad thieves uh you know who are who are meth dealers or you know and and just general kind of violent but no not so Turn, turns out he's he's uh pretty pretty villainous and kidnaps the love interest yeah. who's not a love interest and you know threatens to torture her if keanu reeves doesn't let him go and and all these all these kinds of things um, i mean he does yeah. do the things you're talking about but he just does them in a very calculated way and he stops doing them i get not I guess arbitrarily at the end of the movie. It's yeah. not arbitrary. It's like part of the rising action. Everything's kind of falling apart. And and under pressure you see his true colors is maybe a better way of saying it. Sure. And it's um, I, I I honestly like the one the one knock I really enjoyed I really enjoyed uh this film and I think it's very good on a number of different axes. Like um uh for example, visually. But the 
the one thing that I would say is if if Bodhi were less obviously villainous, I think the conflict that Keanu Reeves faces would stick with you more, right? If yeah. Bodhi really were more of a Dominic Toretto and it's like, hey, this is an alternative, not this is just a rejection of systems of honor, you know, and and of like virtue and of uh, obligation person to person and we, we, you know, it's my hot body, I do what I want. He, You know, he really occupies like a uh, Cartman place on the more moral <laughs> continuum um, and represented more like Dom does. Hey, this is an alternative, you know, this is an alternative system of virtues uh, that exists sort of circumscribed by the larger society, uh, but not, you know, not entirely, um, not entirely aligned with it. Uh, but like there is a good and there's an argument to be made that that this good is better than the the good of the larger society. Um, you know, if you could call it like family uh, that like it would be it would be easier to see um Keanu Reeves's struggle in this uh the, the other thing that would help is as you say if if Gary Busey actually presented if this were a like a Henry the 4th uh type of story where you're choosing between the the good father and the bad father right, right. and that like you don't be like Patrick Swayze, Keanu Reeves. Be like Gary Busey, you know. And and <laughs> which and, is a sentence that no one's ever uttered. <laughs> right, exactly. That's it's wonderful when you can come up with one of those. Which um, which isn't that. So yeah, at the at the beginning, with my with my beginner's mind, when I heard that, uh, you know that that uh, Pat, Patrick Swayze played the bodhisattva of surfing. You know, right. Um, that like if there were a actual some sort of uh philosophy behind it rather than like uh rather than the like the lonely island sketch where Andy Samberg throws the ice cream cone on the, the ground because <laughs> he won't be part I won't be part of your system. Yeah. <laughs> um, like uh I you know I feel like it would have been a harder uh, a harder choice and kind of a more interesting as a viewer a more interesting um, sort of conundrum. That said, he's super charismatic, you know, and kind of ambiguous and sort of, and sort of mysterious enough, you know, and does seem to like draw a, you know, a, a sort of cadre of lost children around him, like a cult leader, um, who all go like night surfing and, and stuff like that. Uh, that like it's a, you know, and he eats at Patrick's Roadhouse. So what's, you know, what can you, <laughs> what can you say about that? You know, it's really great. Yeah. yeah. The expository dialogue has, is peppered with Patrick Swayze movie references, which is funny, right? He drives a 57 Chevy. You know, Piano Reeves' surfboard looks like a 57 Chevy, which yeah. is the car he drives in during dancing. Oh, I was tracking him and he ate at Patrick's Roadhouse. Of course, Roadhouse is a movie that Patrick Swayze made in 1989, two years prior to this movie, et cetera, et cetera. Also, but yeah. I mean, also a very famous beachside kind of diner uh, type of place. Oh, it is. Yeah, it's on. Oh. Uh, yeah, it's on uh, Entrada. It's on PCH and Entrada. So from <laughs> my house, you take the ten to PCH, and you stop at the Green Building. That's Patrick's Roadhouse. It's uh, covered with shamrocks. <laughs> oh wow! So so one question before I answer, respond to what you're saying, I have one question about LA geography that's yes. related to this. So the the beach that they go to uh -huh. that has the arsenic in the water. Yes. 
what beach is that? It's um, Latigo they, Beach. Latigo so Beach, yes. Yeah, so it's what up, is it like in real life? So it's up towards Malibu. It is not nearly, I mean, you, what you get is the impression that it's very near to sort of settled civilization and like, uh, you know, an urban or suburban environment. That's not so. It's, it's, you know, probably 40 minutes up the coast from Santa Monica, where I, which is where I grew up and near where I live now. Um, not quite all the way to Point Doom, which is the end of Santa Monica Bay and is the kind of the Malibu, you know, the, the one of the kind of central features of Malibu, uh, which you may remember from such films as The Big Lebowski, uh, which is... And a, Lord of the Rings, right? <laughs> right. Yes, absolutely. Um, but uh, it's almost all the way up there. It's not the other side. The, the, uh, the beaches on the other side get even more kind of like rustic and out there, but I don't think they're as good uh, for surf, uh, good for surfing as the beaches in um in Santa Monica Bay. So the uh yeah, Latigo, Latigo Beach, but it is like in order to get from there to anywhere where you'd have like a city streets with a bank on them. Um yeah, you know, you'd be you'd be driving for 40 45 minutes. Oh, wow. okay, cool. So that's interesting to know about it. It's yeah, so I mean, there's they, a little there's a little compression of like space. There's a little, right. you know, uh, uh artistic license taken with like the the location of things. Right. Okay, so to go back to what you were saying before, the conflict in Point Break, the the thematic symbolic conflict, I suppose, or Keanu Reeves' conflict, is is interesting because it isn't really interpersonal. It's it's a it's a homosocial movie, right? Uh, like Top Gun. <laughs> oh yeah, where even yeah. the girl, yeah, remember what the girl is named in Top Gun? Charlie. You remember oh. what the girl is named in this? Tyler. This is so, (laughs) these movies are so homosocial. These movies are about dudes together that even the, the women who are purportedly the love interest have guys names. And this is not, no, this is a movie about Maverick and Goose. This is not a movie about, about Charlie or Tyler. Right, right, right. Yeah, exactly. We're not, and also we're not making a value judgment about those names. I mean, it's, this is, it's just what's happening in the movie, given the context of the time that it's being spoken of. But so the notion, so to unpack what's happening with Keanu Reeves here a little bit, his internal conflict, it's tricky because it's not quite exactly what they say it is, except other times they do say what it is. There's a variety of different speeches in this movie that serve as various sorts of Downton Abbey moments. Um, the Downton Abbey, the move, the thing I want to have be the Downton Abbey moment is the two meatball sandwiches. But I, unless you want to refer to Keanu Reeves and Patrick Swayze as two meatball sandwiches, two meatball sa- <laughs> hey, two meatball sandwiches. <laughs> yes, because at one point when Gary Busey is on a steakhouse, uh, steakhouse is on a stakeout watching a bank, he has Keanu Reeves go bring him two meatball sandwiches because they're his favorite. And we'll get back to that later. I often say that in podcasts, and we don't actually end up going back to it. But I think this time we might. So. There's this idea – again, they talk about ejaculating so much in this movie, and I do think that they're trying to tell you what the movie is about, huh. which is you know, thrill, uh, more less the idea of uh, intellectual freedom as a – this is not a Pink Floyd the Wall kind of social rebellion that's taking place wherein society is stifling people by limiting their intellectual curiosity. Right. The the uh, when when the criticism of the surfers for the cops 
is that they live these predictable lives where everybody has to go to work and, and all the other people in society, all the other people that they that they steal from and, and also that just exist and aren't surfers. It's their lives are, are dull and uninteresting. Uh, but it's not just this idea that because they serve the man, they don't know the truth. Right. They don't know the, that they're being, you know, kind of mentally enslaved. It's this notion that thrill seeking is uniquely situated, like extreme thrill seeking is uniquely situated among human activity as a uh, axis for achieving spiritual and personal enlightenment. And that there is no conflict. There is no asceticism. There is no conflict between pleasure seeking and enlightenment seeking. There is no conflict between sex and spirituality, right? The, the, what's being presented as the thesis, and of course, this is being presented by people who are villains. So you have to, you know, is this is definitely this is a movie where we've talked about Paradise Lost. We've talked about the sympathetic takes of the devil in Paradise Lost, which you have to at some level recognize are not really the protagonistic sort of choices, right? They are the antagonistic choices because he is the devil in the story. It's not entirely while while Bodhi is more villainous than Dom Toretto is by a huge margin. It is not entirely clear that everything that Bodhi says is being positioned as coming from a villain. And so you don't really know exactly where the movie comes down on it. And I want to interrogate this a little bit, but it's the idea that when you're out on the ocean and you're, and you're surfing and you're facing death or you're skydiving, right? When you're, when you're skydiving, it's as close to God as you're ever going to get. When you're surfing and you're in a risky situation with huge waves, you're feeling the awesomeness of nature relative to yourself. And you're in a position to achieve enlightenment that you would not otherwise be able to achieve uh, merely through what education contemplation. Yeah. Because it's, a, yeah. it's experiential, right? It's about yeah. that sort of that exaltation, right? Yeah. And experience of exaltation, sort of moments of exaltation. And I think the thing about the skydiving is that it sort of prolongs that experience of, of exaltation, right? Skydiving is really a kind of tantric surfing uh, in this rubric in this like cosmology because you get the rush like the adrenaline the thrill is higher right it's more yeah. intense and it's also more uh more prolonged i mean i you know i will say like as a uh you know as a as a person who is sometimes unfocused and also rides a motorcycle um I'll say that like one of the the great features of uh, riding a motorcycle is that your attention is 100% on that, you know, yeah. at the time that there is there is a kind of which is different. Actually, it's because it's not that what I'm saying is not that I'm thrilled all the time, but it is that I'm present all the time. Right. Which is slightly different from the thrill seeking philosophy that that Bodhi has. But I think kind of um, kind of related to it because it's it's about it's about practice, right? And it's about uh, not an intellectual understanding of an experience, but kind of actually participating in the experience, you know, as it were in real time um, and, and sort of, sort of having the experience in a kind of non-analytical mode uh, that, that, you know, provides the, um, the exaltation that is being positioned here as, you know, as being, um, uh, as being sort of spiritually efficacious. Now, whatever we think about it being spiritually efficacious, th no one can tell me 
right? That a movie produced by James Cameron is anti thrill yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. in any yeah. respect. Yep. Yep. Uh, and it's like, even the car, ch- I, I just felt like, I don't know, watching this, I had this just huge appreciation for a couple things. One was the photography. I thought some of the water stuff was really gorgeous, like really beautiful to look at. Um, the night stuff, the, the low light stuff, just, just incredible work working within the, like the limitations, you know, I don't know. Cause like everything, if you were to make it now, right, it would all be digital. Which, which would, they did. Well, you know? yeah. In, in 2015. Yeah. Right. I'm, yeah. I, and I, I haven't seen that one either. I, I hate yeah. to say. So if I'm, you know, if I'm wrong, I'm going to look like the, the worst kind of arrogant idiot. Uh, no, there are worse ones, but the, um, the, you know, the thing would be, it would be like digital. It would all be like HDR, like high dynamic range. Like you'd see like very deeply into the darks and like, you know, nothing would be sort of obscure. And like the night photography and the kind of the, the like the dark on dark, the like dark blue on black, uh, photography and some of the, uh, some of the backlit surfing stuff, the ocean stuff with the sun glistening off the ripples in the ocean and the sort of the bodies of the surfers moving in this, you know, dance like manner, uh, with, with the waves backlit and so contrasty that it may as well be black and white. Like it was really thrilling to watch. There was a car chase scene in a parking lot and it, I, and I thought during a car chase scene in a, parking lot shouldn't be that exciting but like the camera is down like you're seeing like car windows uh, sort of whip by as the camera moves you know stuff is framed so there's a frame within a frame of car windows that are you're kind of looking through as you speed past them to see the thing and it creates this dynamism it creates this motion um and this like, uh, you know, I don't know, this sense of sort of thrill and danger. Uh, there's a good handheld shot, like long handheld shot in, in Bodhi's like cult party, um, where he's uh, eating limes out of someone's mouth or, you know, whatever it was. And, uh, and then finally just the, the surfing stuff, like a lot of the, the surfing photography and skydiving photography is, is like, is real thrills. So, you know, if you're, it would be, it would be possible. I think it would be easy to um, make the case too strongly, you know, that this movie criticizes the the thrill seeking Bodhi um, philosophy, filled as it is with uh, all kinds of thrills. Yeah, yeah. I, I would even I would even say that the movie the the, the movie has opportunities. Well, how would, how would I say this? Okay, so. Keanu Reeves' character in this movie, Johnny Utah, is played played quarterback at the Rose Bowl. <laughs> and you're telling me that this is someone who's unacquainted with the feeling of exultant thrill, right? <laughs> right? Like that that uh that I think that okay, I these things come to me as criticisms of the movie yeah. because they sort of feel like failures in logic. But we didn't watch Point Break because it was bad. We watched Point Break because it was good. Right, right. But I feel like I have to remark on these things because they wrestle with me while I'm watching it. One is, okay, if the issue with Johnny Utah is that he needs to explore his thrill-seeking side, then he was a star college football quarterback. Why didn't he do that at, Ohio, at The Ohio State University, uh-huh. right? If you're the star quarterback at The Ohio State University, have you really never, like— have you never really like met a cute woman before? 
right? Or a cute dude. I don't know, right? Like he's probably met a lot of very like in shape dudes who have like interesting life philosophies being in athletics his entire life. Um, I know again, it's the Midwest. It's the, it's the eighties when he was doing it. It's a little bit different, but Johnny Utah is a blank slate in this movie. He, we learn almost nothing about what his life is like outside of the context of the events that you see. Most of what you hear is him lying while he's undercover. Although I will venture to say that he does not go so far as to not tell everyone his real name when he is undercover as a police <laughs> officer, uh, which is a question that if you Google it is too obvious to provide an answer. Uh, do, do police officers undercover use their real names when they do it? Um, but not only that, but he's in a bank robbery division right of the fbi where yeah you know dr cox is telling you that we do things by the book but he's screaming it while talking about ejaculating and your partner's gary Busey eating a bunch of meatball sandwiches <laughs> right like it's, it's not a boring job so it sort of feels like it sort of feels like a little bit akin to uh, I'm, I'm thinking of things like Pilgrim's Progress or Dante's Inferno, where there are things that are put forward that are supposed to be bad that are still like so f they're fantastical in the service of the artistic project to a degree that makes them seem awesome. Right. Like when they're supposed to be bad. Right. It's uh, and, and I don't think it's a bug. I think it's a feature. Right. It's it's Johnny Utah's life is not boring. He, if he right. were to just, if he were merely to be riding shotgun with Gary Busey chasing bank robbers, right? His he would be fine, right? Dianu, Dianu, right? But but he's it's, but part of it's sort of what it reminds me of, or what it makes me think is that this is not a movie about family, right? That's what it gets down to. Is that that we talked about the Fast and the Furious being about the conflicts. Paul Walker and Vin Diesel, they have conflicts about their social roles and who they are with each other. And this question of, well, what is Keanu Reeves supposed to be doing in this movie? Because it turns out that Bodhi is actually a sneering, hostage-taking, you know, woman-murdering, friend-murdering villain and torturer, right? So, like, of course you shouldn't be doing what he says. But if you think of it as less like where you belong and more like who you are, it seems somewhat like Bodhi becomes a dimension of himself that he's exploring. I mean, that's that's, I guess, what we mean by saying that the movie well, it's not what we mean by saying, but it's a, it's an aspect of its homosociality. And I guess maybe I think this is a really good homosocial movie because it blurs the lines in a whole bunch of counterintuitive ways between other people and the self. How, mm. What do you see in other people and what do you see in yourself? And I would even say that the performances seem like aspects of the self. It's almost like Herman's head. It's like all the screaming voices, <laughs> right? And I and I think that I don't necessarily think this is done on purpose, but I think it's a product. You mentioned James Cameron, right? Um, I think it's a product of James would you Cameron. Say, would you say that Cam each each one for the other is a kind of blue alien? <laughs> well, okay. So Catherine Bigelow is, you know, I'm not going to say she's a more accomplished director than James Cameron, but she's up there for sure. But you get the sense that the movie's unrelenting desire to thrill in every scene is something that perhaps came down from James Cameron a little bit because it feels a lot like him. Right. But this idea that nothing is boring, uh, you know, nothing in this movie is boring. And th so there's no contrast between the boring parts of life and the exciting parts of life. The The tagline for the movie is what, like 100 percent adrenaline, 100 percent pure adrenaline. Right. Is that's what the movie is selling it for you. And if that's the aesthetic ethos, then it creates a consistency in the style of portrayal of the characters, perhaps informed by the film editing, where there are all these sorts of 
shattered fragments of different kinds of of the same maelstrom, of the same mental maelstrom that you're in, which in this movie is located in the audience surrogate of Johnny Utah. It is definitely, um, and, and uh, you know, of all storms, this is definitely a maelstrom. <laughs> that is true. It is a 50-year storm. In, in fact. Um, <laughs> but that, but, like, uh, so, yeah. like, uh, just to kind of ring the changes on that, I don't know if you yeah. noticed, but the, the, um, the titles... Uh, the opening credits, like the, the words come in on opposite sides and go across the screen and kind of like overlap each other. So point comes yeah. in from the right and break comes in from the left and they cross each other with the letters, like, you know, making a cutout pattern, uh, one against the other until they get to, to point break. Same thing happens with Keanu Reeves and Patrick Swayze where they're, um, you know, they're, uh, uh, their names actually kind of melt in this same fashion graphically within the first couple minutes of the movie. And so the, like the idea of, you know, the idea of that, uh, melding, you know, the idea of that, them representing kind of different aspects of, of a similar thing, uh, is, you know, I think is borne out like at, at almost every level of, of the design of the experience of this film. Also, right. Like they both go into water together and kind of like roll around in the mud, uh, you know, and, and like fight and wrestle and, you know, get baptized and get reborn and what is dead may never die. And the whole, you know, the, the kind of the whole thing. And then they like, they, you know, they jump out of a plane together, right? Keanu Reeves, like Superman's down on top of, uh, on top of Patrick Swayze. And, you know, as they, you know, tumble onto the ground wrapped up in the parachute and, you know, Swayze kind of rolls out and Keanu Reeves is still covered by the parachute. I'm sure you had the same thought that I have, which was, I hate in the postcoital scenes when the sheet covers one actor and not the other. <laughs> Because that is so unrealistic. I so okay so. Uh, <laughs> I believe I think Patrick Swayze skydived more than fifty times in the making of this movie. I read when, when they were doing this. They, that and they shot did where it. You jumped, see uh, their faces like they did it yeah. themselves. That's yeah. pretty cool. Yeah, definitely. So I think because this all gets to that decision that Johnny Utah makes at the end of the movie to throw his police badge into the ocean. Which, from the standpoint of people relating to each other in sort of a grounded everyday way, makes no sense, right? Like, you're in another, you're, you've traveled to a foreign country, don't throw away your identification, <laughs> right? You, you might need it to get home. Is, is the, is, are the cops paying for your flight home? Are you just not gonna have your ID? Like, what are you even doing? But this isn't that kind of movie. This is a, this movie is taking place in a sort of, uh, homoerotic mindscape. Uh, where the consequences of actions aren't quite exactly as as you might expect them to be. Not that most action movies don't take place in that kind of spot, too. I shouldn't say homoerotic. It is really homosocial. I guess there are homoerotic aspects to it. I feel like it's an important distinction to make. The idea of are you exploring and relating to this other dude's body because you want to learn about your own body, uh, right? And because you have a desire for understanding your own body and how it works and, and, uh, and you sort of see yourself as another person versus – are you looking for another person 
Yeah, are you for looking a, for an interpe- like an of interpersonal course. relationship? Yes, you yes. know, you know, wh- however, like romantically, you conceive that. But are you looking for another person for an interpersonal relationship, or is it really about kind of working out, working out yourself? Or I mean, or like even even down to the level of like, is the proper is the proper functioning society the domain the domain of men and the relationships between men and. And actually, no alternative to that is presented <laughs> in in the film, right? Like you can yeah. be you can be the sort of uh, you know who you think who who you think are the chaotic neutral, but who turn out to be the chaotic evil, uh, right? Um, Bodhi uh, led patriarchal society, or you can be the Doctor Cox, you know, yeah. uh, whose name is no accident. Uh, <laughs> led... That's not his name in this movie. <laughs> That's his name in Scrubs. But yes, it is no accident. Patriarchal, uh, patriarchal, patriarchal society. But you know, in in either case, um, uh, in either case, it is the the kind of the men doing man things, the relationships uh, among men, like. I, I, you know, I want you to like t- put on this blindfold, strip down, and dive into the pool and bring me up two bricks. You know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what, what even was that supposed to be? But I, you know, that that like that that's the that's the sort of thing. This is you know, it's sort of like you can be in. Really, really, the two modes of society are you can be in like the first half of Full Metal Jacket or you can be in the second half of Full Metal Jacket. <laughs> but not being in Full Metal Jacket is not an option. Right. Uh, right, right. That, that uh, at least that the kind of this movie's representational space entertains. Yeah. Yeah. There's no saying grace at the end of this movie. <laughs> there is no, <laughs> there is no like there's no Michelle Rodriguez. OK, so I did want to I don't know. I It's it sort of does point. It does point break a disservice to talk about it only in the context of Fast and the Furious. Yeah, you're right. But I do. I, but I do feel like I need to mention a couple of other things. Mm. Uh, it is notable that the that the love interest is not Bodhi's sister. And is is not related by blood to anybody and that nobody takes care of her. Right. As opposed to in Fast and the Furious, where Jordana Brewster is Dom Toretto's sister and is sort of being taken care of by the group. There is no there is a rival gang that gets scapegoated for what the main gang is secretly doing. Uh, They're not Asian. (laughs) Right. So like that, that whole thing isn't in the movie, I guess. But there's also no are there any there's no non I guess there's Keanu Reeves, who is multi-ethnic. But is there anybody else in the movie who isn't white? Is War Dog? I mean, I thought War Dog was was oh. flirting with like uh, with oh you yeah, know, yeah 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 a, a yeah. kind of exoticize yeah, yeah. exoticizing yeah. yeah Asian Pacific Islanders or Hapa people or something like that that like yeah. there was this uh, uh, with all his extravagant tattoos but the yeah uh, other than that yeah there uh, a lot of white people. like Los Angeles is not presented as a place that has multiple cultures that are in conflict with each other yeah. Right. Like that's not part of the style here. That's not how the subculture is. of Which surfing actually is you could. Well, you, you could make the case that right yeah. along the coast, that's not inaccurate and certainly yeah. wasn't inaccurate at the time. Well, yeah, sure. For sure. Yeah, definitely. But it, it's it's a different idea of subculture in the sense that it's like, oh, they live among us and they are not known to us. Yeah. But it's not because they're subaltern. It's not because. You know, they are there's ethnic minorities. That's not because these are people who, you know, don't have that are outside of, you know, the traditional employment because of their relative low level of privilege. Like these are these are dilettantes. 
that we're talking about. These are like, you know, these are the kind of volu- very voluntary sorts of transients who come in and out of town and right. have plenty of money because they rob banks. And it's uh, right, exactly. And the, and sort of they they actually represent, even though they're they like the relationship to the presidents, you know, is not yeah. is not entirely worked out. I mean, and it's not, it's not meant to be. I mean, I, you're right that like these things come off as criticisms and that's not, you know, we came to, to, to praise point break, not to bury it, uh, yeah. under the sand. Um, we, <laughs> we came to just hold it under the water, you know, until it kind of sputters and is, is reborn. Um, <laughs> yes. You know, as a yeah, as a new new more exotic thrill seeking version of of itself, but like it's uh, oh god, I for, I forget even where I was going with that pizza. Well, I'm saying is that this isn't a movie about family. Yeah, it is the only movie that is not about family. All the other ones are about family. Point Break is just about yourself, and only if you're a dude, uh, <laughs> which is ironic because it's directed by a woman. Um, but the, but the, the, yeah, it is it, exactly it is that. And like when you really think of what here's here's the point I was trying to make. Like yeah. when you really think of what those, as you say, dilettantes, what these sort of transnational surfing uh, crime click must be. Right. Like they, they must operate at a at a level of at a very high level of sophistication. Um right. Right. Like in that, like you're you're, uh, you know, as you say about the Joker, um, like you, you your uh, carefree lifestyle requires a high level of discipline and organization. Yeah. Right, um, right. yeah. Uh, and that like, um, you know, someone <laughs> someone had to pile all of those desks up so that you could make your kangaroo court. Yeah. But, and, yeah. and so that final decision to throw the badge in the ocean is more about. Johnny Utah coming to terms with the part of himself that's like Bodie, not because he is attracted to not because Bodie convinces him by his words or deeds that he that that's the way that you ought to live, but rather because he recognizes in himself and in his own response to impulse those same impetuses that the surfers were engaged in. I think I think that's the idea, right, is that he's like he's ridden on the edge and gone beyond the edge Right. Or as whatever they say, the, the boundaries of uh, of kind of how you can live and, and, and not kind of leave it all behind. So it's, it's all sort of pseudo psychedelic in that respect, uh-huh. this, this sort of trance state that you're going into. And once he's gone beyond the boundary, uh, he can't come back. Right. And it's not I don't think he comes to the conclusion at the end of the movie that the law is useless. He, do, he doesn't even seem to have a particularly sophisticated notion of what the law is or does. It's like, man, you know, you killed a bunch of people. You got to go to jail. <laughs> and it's sort of like he sort of says it as if that's just I mean, he doesn't sort of he says it as if that's a natural truth. Well, I think that's actually that's the that's the interesting thing, right? Like he right. becomes, you know, he becomes if if Patrick Swayze was an agent of chaos, Keanu Reeves becomes an agent of balance, you know, right. sort of like the water, like the the ideal surfer. And like uh, Swayze asks him, like how, Bodhi asks him, do you still surf? And he says every day. You know, every day I still surf. I still, you know, I'm out there like riding that edge and, and, uh, you know, and, and doing it. And, and even the, even the idea of like, uh, you know, I'm not going to let him, um, get taken in, you know, that yeah. like, uh, that there is a, that I, my, my sense of justice, right, is satisfied. Uh, and sort of natural consequences of things is satisfied by him electing to end his own life by like walking into the the raging ocean. Yeah. Um, 
that that yeah. you know um that it it is like a natural phenomenon like uh you know you you did these things and here are the here are the consequences and and a, a little bit like jibes with what what Bodhi said about like every 50 years or something the, like the quasi mystical like every 50 and uh, not even quasi mystical the mystical um thing that like things go in 50 year cycles and you know nature comes to to really show us our place you know, it's almost like Keanu Reeves arrives to sort of show him his place uh, and his place is yeah. you know, no no longer among the living. You can tell that Johnny Utah is the one who is going to bring balance, because when Bodhi asks him about surfing, he says he does it every day. And he says, yeah, but I hate sand. It's just rough and coarse and it gets everywhere. So it's <laughs> <laughs> it's really it's like poetry. It rhymes. Right. <laughs> It's so funny to watch Point Break, having not watched it in a long time, and to not be able to avoid the idea that it's been influenced by a whole bunch of movies that were made far after it, right? right? Because it it feels of a kin with so many other movies that feel much more contemporary, and it doesn't even feel all that dated. I mean, there definitely are things about it that are not the way that you would make it today. The most dated thing is probably the music. Uh, which feels very like there's just big brassy orchestral villain music sometimes, mm. which which these days would be like wah, <laughs> They would just like turn on an inkjet printer inside of a bathroom, <laughs> and it would just be like wah, wah, wah. <laughs> But instead, it's like ba 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 ba. Give up on it, Johnny. You know, she's going to die. Terror chord, terror chord. Right. Like it's, but there's uh, also, I mean, some of the surfing stuff is, has like really beautiful kind of, uh, exultation. Yes. Um, uh, type of music and that like it's it's meant almost it's it's almost meditative, right? Like it's yeah. meant to almost kind of induce a uh, trance state. Um, yeah. it does. I mean, it makes the argument, you know, with a capital A for for surfing uh right and for skydiving it's interesting that it's probably it's probably perceived if not definitively thought of as both the best surfing and the best skydiving movie right like it's i don't know i don't necessarily i've i've heard it described as the best skydiving movie more often than i've heard it described as the best surfing movie and i think that if you were to speak to a surfing enthusiast there's probably movies that they like better but i don't think anybody would laugh you out of the room if someone asked you what's the best surfing movie and you said point break mm-hmm. uh right because i mean yeah the way they shoot i mean in many this movie is like top gun in so many respects one of them is the way that surfing is photographed and presented feels reminiscent of how the airplanes are are filmed and represented in Top Gun in that there are very, very strong stylistic choices that are being made that are that are uh, different from the style that the rest of the movie is presented in. Sure. And that and that and that give this activity this real biological dimension. Right. It just feels like it's this throbbing, living, flowing thing. Yeah. Right. The surfing in this movie, um, even if every once in a while they seem to be cutting away to a stock image that I've also seen, you know, in, in some comedy show from the 80s that also used it um, like in Muppet Babies or something. Like, <laughs> I, I've seen that picture of that tsunami before. There are not that many different waves that were that big. Uh, but uh, but yeah, it's uh, sure. It's and the, definitely... the facility to film them was not as sophisticated as it is now with like, you know, tiny lightweight cameras that are in essence disposable and stuff. Like but that, that one thing. shot of Patrick Swayze coming up 
through the tube, yeah. right? Where it's like a medium shot and he's coming towards the camera yes. and he's twisting to make it through. I mean, that shot is amazing. That's yeah. as good as anything. That's, a, that's as good a shot as of anything I've seen, you know, contemporary, yeah. right? Like I can't say that I can't, I can't think of any shot that's better than that shot at doing what it's trying to do. Yeah. Uh, it, just from a, even from a performance standpoint, it's like, it's just like, it's perfect. It's a perfect shot for what it's, um, uh, for what it's worth. The music by Mark Isham, uh, who, uh, also, Oh, I was, I had a, some good, some good comps who is a, a, an accomplished, uh, film composer who also did, um, Oh, come on. Where's, where's the one that I wanted? Uh, all kinds of things. Little Man yeah. Tate. Uh, <laughs> cool World. Remember that? The animated? I think Little Man Tate is on HBO Max also, if you <laughs> want to do that one. <laughs> well, I looked at that. I was like, hey, it's Little Man Tate. I haven't thought of that movie in 20 years. We can be a, <laughs> uh, we can be a Mark Isham uh, podcast and just do yes. his, all of his, uh, all of his films. Over Ishming it. Uh, Blade. <laughs> hmm? He, oh, so, okay. He did the music for Blade. Yes, sir. So, okay. 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 So it's not like the whole music to the whole movie is like that. Because you're right, the music during a lot of the sequences felt really, you know, if not if not modern, then then certainly not tied down to convention, and it was was buoyant and it was it was powerful. It's just that there were certain scenes that felt like they were being pigeonholed into a more conventional sort of thing. But it, maybe it just stuck out because the other stuff wasn't so bad. But Blade has great has great soundtrack. That's that's awesome. Has yeah. great scoring. Yeah, so, for sure, for sure. So there, there you go. We're we're uh, we're nearing uh, the end. The tide the tide is is going out, and I feel like we're just getting started. Yeah, um, we're just getting started on this film. I don't know, Pete. What, what are you? You're you. Uh, you know, you're you're the local here, and I'm just uh, surfing your break. <laughs> so you you tell me what's the last thing that we're going to concentrate on. Well, where does this where does Bodhi fit among the Patrick Swayze characters? Okay, there you go. So so I, I I'll throw this notion out there. Have you have you seen I mean the answer to this is almost certainly no for absolutely everybody listening to this. But have you seen Bryce Denise at all, which is the uh uh it's a Jean Duhardine from The Artist, right? Did a did a surfing comedy uh both a TV show a la Ali G and uh-huh. a comedy movie in France. That is about a surfer who lives in Nice on the Mediterranean Sea who is waiting for that one big wave. Uh-huh. Right? Oh, wow. And, okay, and no, so, I have not seen it. So he practices the religion of Bodhism, which means he worships the character of Bodhi from Point Break. And he has a uh, and he has a framed picture of Patrick Swayze in a shrine right in the corner of his room. And he talks about – and the, I mean the big joke of the movie is – He's waiting for that one 50-year storm. He doesn't call it the 50-year storm, but the one big wave that's coming. And he's in Nice on the Mediterranean Sea, where, of course, it would never come, right? Like, there's never going to be a big wave. And then and the movie, he goes to the Atlantic Ocean is like, oh, no, this is serious, right? Like, there's uh, there's actual waves here. But he's trying to surf on, on you know, the Med, which is like a swimming pool. Um, but, but I bring that out because the character of Bodhi in Point Break is, I, I think— in the zeitgeist uh, occupies this area of this placid transcendent utterly chill uh patrick swayze sex symbol spiritual symbol right both a sort of confoundment and fulfillment of a new masculinity right like patrick swayze is so many of these great archetypical males 
that have this, but it's a new archetype. It feels like a new kind of thing. I mean, Patrick Swayze is is a is a bigger James Dean than James Dean. I'll say that right now. Like huh. in ter- in, ter- in my mind, in terms of as I think about it, defining the idea of a new masculinity for his era. I think in retrospect, Patrick Swayze's reputation should only get bigger um, because he's the I mean, the guy from Dirty Dancing. We're just going to ignore that as a right. cultural touchstone. Yeah, right? Dirty. Right. Exactly. Dirty Dancing. And that yeah. that like, uh, yeah, that he sort of brings it, you know, the um, what does Busey say about Los Angeles? Oh, the air got dirty and the sex got clean uh, yeah. <laughs> over the like over the time, you know, that that he had been alive since the since the 60s or 70s when he, you know, when he'd been when he'd been living, you know? Yeah. And I mean, like, um, I, and, and Patrick Swayze comes to, to represent, I don't know, like, uh, the outsiders, you know, the, the renegades, um, the, but not, un, the, the not the violent, angry, uncomposed renegades. Yeah, no, the that's cool right. Renegades. No, yeah, exactly. It's like, it's like his characters have an uncommon valor, you know, and that like every time he comes over the horizon, it's like a, a I don't know, like a rosy dawn or a, um, you know, like a, a, you know, pink or a pink or orange or like very, very brilliant dawn, you know, <laughs> that. Uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because I was, I was going to mention, I mean, some of his compatriots, some of these movies like Rob Lowe and like Young Blood or like the various people in Red Dawn seem part of this project. Yeah, exactly. Um, but, but Bodie and point break isn't Bodie and point break. Yes. That's the most jarring thing about watching this movie. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Because we think when we think, when I think about Bodie from point break and when Bodie and point from point break is parodied or referenced in some other piece, I think what's usually being referred to is, you know, John Dalton from roadhouse, mm. right? Uh, like is, or like, you know, Darry Curtis from the outsiders, Bodie is a psychopath, right? Like, I mean, maybe psychopath is the wrong word because we don't need to get, um, I mean, he does have sociopathic tendencies. Bodie is not entirely unlike Killmonger in the sense that he does exhibit demonstrable sociopathic behaviors. Mm -hmm. So his core argument may not necessarily be his problem, but he has problems with self-harm. He has problems with like extremely callous disregard for others that he cares about. You know, he has problems with sexual violence, right? Um, which, which are sort of characteristic of, of psychosis, right. And, of, but as distinct from mental illness, right. Sort of sociopathic behavior that wouldn't necessarily get you under the DSM, these sorts of, uh, um, the, the sort of way that you manipulate people and this extreme charisma, right. Um, Bodhi is a fraud because he's presented as somebody who has these qualities because he is enlightened in some way, but it turns out that he's a sociopath. Right. And he's he has that he has the charisma. His charisma is the charisma of the sociopath. Sure. And and, and he's not of- and he's not he's uh, there's a long list of things that he's not that he could be kind of mistaken for, like a, a surfer burnout. Right. Yeah. A sort of like a, a, a bodhisattva, like a, a sort of beach Buddha, you know, right. um, the uh, yeah, or like a, you know, a, a, a person with a a person with a, like a plan or like the man with the plan, right? Like the, the idea, the idea that he has a coherent case against, uh, against society. Like he really doesn't like society because he is, you know, because he doesn't recognize that other people are people, you know, he he really doesn't like society because he, he can't really form 
it doesn't seem like he can really form attachments, though he he's pretty sad when that one guy gets shot. But he leaves that guy's body in the middle of the desert without thinking twice. I mean, there's that line that's yeah. said on both sides of the conflict. Both Gary Busey and Patrick Swayze say it, right? Which is, or if not them, then people adjacent to them that don't hesitate, right? You you can never hesitate, um, right? And and and, and uh, when when Gary Busey is saying it, it's it's you get the sense it means something a little different than when Patrick Swayze is saying it. But like Patrick Swayze, that picture of that parachute in the desert just sitting there, blowing in the wind as he drives away, yeah. in his Land Rover is like. That's brutal. It is. Right? Yeah. With the money, the, the money that had been in that guy's bag, right? Like just floating in the wind and it's not yeah. even, you know, it's not, he didn't even get his money. You know? yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yes, but no, it's, 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 uh, it's notable mostly, well, because it's a huge left turn that the movie seems to take and it feels a bit jarring and you would expect the movie to be more like Fast and Furious where Dom Toretto at the end of the day has a bit more of a, you know, a good reason, not a good reason, but he's more defensible. I mean, also in, in, in Fast and the Furious, part of the danger that the cops recognize is the danger to Dom Toretto and his crew if they continue to rob the trucks because there's going to be a general ratcheting up of violence. There's no – there's nobody is here saying, man, if all the banks keep getting robbed, somebody's going to start going Charles Bronson on this and it's going to get bad. Even though that does happen in the movie, it isn't even addressed as like a serious problem, right? Um, but I guess that's not what I came to say. What I came to say is that – the idea of Bodhi is bigger than the portrayal of Bodhi in the movie. Mm -hmm. And there are certain movie characters that are like that, where when you watch the movie, they're not really like that. They're not really like how you remember, but the character has reverberated in the way that they've reverberated through influence to an extent that that other character still exists, you know? And it's, I mean, you, a movie that uh, is filmed in the same, so the, the, the football scene where all the, um, headlights are shown shining through the hair of everybody and everybody is this darkness surrounded in golden silhouette. That's actually the same beach that the uh, beach scene in the karate kid is filmed. And, and that's another movie that's sort of like this one in that you were, if you were to just sit down and, and gather from what you know about the movie, who Daniel LaRusso is, you would expect the karate kid to be like a very sympathetic and positive sort of person. But then when you sit down and watch what he does, over the course of the movie where he's like, you know, being really rude to people that are trying to be his friend sometimes and like punching and kicking them and bringing in an old man to beat up a bunch of children. Right. Like that, like maybe he's not as defensible. Right. As you might remember, maybe his his conflicts are different. The karate kid is different than you remember it. Right. Uh, because Daniel LaRusso as a character is more complicated and not as nice. Um, and also like more threatening, right? More sort of sexually threatening, more threatening in general um, than, than you might remember him being. And certainly more than you would make him were you to try to remake the movie without watching it very closely. So this is why this is why you really like Cobra Kai, in other words. Yes, like, yes, so yes. The, the where we've arrived at the end of our uh, conversation about Point Break is everyone go on Netflix and watch Cobra Kai. <laughs> Cobra Kai is so good. I love Cobra Kai. And this season is great. It's it's going real slow because I'm watching it with my wife. And every time an adult just commits just flagrant, massive, incredible malfeasance in their negligence toward their duty to children, we have to stop watching it for an episode or two. <laughs> <laughs> and and it happens every episode multiple times. <laughs> so it's just have you watched that show? You have you watched the latest season? No, no season I haven't. I, I haven't. I didn't I didn't have uh, YouTube. I 
red, which is now YouTube premium. You know, yeah. I didn't have any of the colors of YouTube. And, uh, so I just, I never got into it. And so I, I have to start from scratch on, on it's, Netflix. I won't, I won't give anything away too much cause it's so, so good. It's so much better than, than anybody thought it was going to be when it came out, I think. And, uh, and it's not just because the Karate Kid needs criticism, because honestly, Karate Kid was a long time ago. If we don't talk about the Karate Kid ever again, you know, that's fine. Um, but it, it is a very fun and compelling and interesting show. And, but one of the things that it involves, like the Karate Kid, which should not be surprising, is high school age children getting in karate fights with each other. Mm. Right. Which is presented unlike in the Karate Kid. So as you might remember from the Karate Kid the uh you might remember the karate kid as being a situation where the kids are fighting each other and the adults aren't really around or involved and that there are a lot of stories like that which are sort of fantasies or stories like the chocolate war or whatever where they're kind of boarding school stories or like stories that are from the perspective of high school kids where it's like nobody can help me where the adults are just not even existing in any sort of like really plausible or feasible yeah, but that's, way. That's not the case with the, the karate kid, right? The adults are kind of setting them on against yes, each other. Yes. What you don't remember from the, what you might not remember from the karate kid is that the rival karate dojos are like using the children against each other in various really highly inappropriate ways that gets fleshed out considerably in Cobra Kai, wherein there are, Cobra, there are karate fights among teenagers where the, the utter disregard for their safety by the adults around them is entirely unforgivable. Um, but you know, that's not, that's part of the point, I suppose. Um, speaking of which, are there any, I know, and again, well, this we have is a different, yeah. we have a different idea. Like the, the culture has kind of moved, right yeah. on the issue of you know on the issue of like children uh, i i will say adolescence right and right. kind of what what the kind of proper way of um of dealing with them is like i you know one thesis you could advance is that like the electronics the 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 eyes phone you know and have made have made these kids today more docile you know and that they're they're uh you know, I don't know, whatever they're, they're not, uh, having sex, right? Like the, the, this generation is having sex less than the last generation was. They're just like, I don't know. They're sitting on Instagram and like goading each other to self harm. Uh, and that like, when you kind of, when you look back at that, like rough and tumble, um, you know, vision of, uh, you know, vision of, of kind of what a, an adolescence was like, uh, in Reseda, (laughs) You know, in the eighties, it, it can be a little bit, uh, it can be a little bit jarring, you know, now, you know, even, even our upbringings, which weren't in Reseda. Oh, sure. I got left, I got left in the car all the damn time. I got, you know, I got attacked and, you know, whatever, you know, it's, it wasn't a big deal. Oh, I'm not Um, even talking, I'm not even talking about getting attacked. I got like, uh, left perfectly safely in my car seat with the windows (laughs) cracked in the car. The, the sort of thing that you would be arrested for these days. Uh, you know, so these kids, you know, maybe they should join Bodie's gang and get pushed beyond the limit (laughs) because they're, they're really, you know, just a, a generation of, uh, you know, a generation of court of of blue flame quarterbacks uh, who you know need to <laughs> need to learn a little something about the real world. If that's the one thing you take away from watching this, 
<laughs> I think the one thing I take away from watching this actually um, is actually watch Point Break because it's it's yes. it's kind of more wonderful and more strange uh, yes. than you think it is, and is is like definitely like a worthy. Um, kind of artistic artifact worth being preserved and talked, talked about, uh, you know, and I would love for everyone to have with their smart, funny friends, uh, the kind of conversation that, uh, we have had with ours tonight. So, uh, if you want to join ours, uh, hit us up in the comments, tell us, you know, what you remember about point break, what you remember about the eighties and, uh, especially what kind of things were done to you as a child that would be unthinkable, (laughs) unthinkable to be portrayed in a comedy about, about, Save that for the Cobra Kai podcast. Oh, sure. Fair enough. (laughs) We'll come back to Cobra Kai and, uh, um, and, and you can do it then. All right. Uh, everyone catch up on WandaVision. (laughs) That's your homework. That's next week. Next week is WandaVision. Yep. That's your homework for this week. And, uh, you know, uh, until then, we're, uh, glad to, uh, we're glad to talk to you. And Pete, I'm always glad to talk to you. Yeah. Likewise. Definitely, man. So uh, we'll be back next week with more Overthinking Podcast. Still then visit us on the internet at uh, overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It probably doesn't deserve. Not a single person says cowabunga. <laughs>